This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is The Bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Since the launch of my podcast, I've also recently released a number one best-selling book called One for the Road, which can be purchased via Amazon. It covers my own personal story and also offers lots of valuable tips on how you too can learn to kick alcohol out of your life for good. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, share and leave a review. Our amazing sponsors for this season are Tweak Life. Do you want to make a positive change to your mental, physical or financial health and not sure where to start? Tweak Life have brought together all areas of well-being in a free, easy-to-use website. You can find their link in the show notes and on my bio via my Instagram, at SoberDave. My guest today on One for the Road quit drinking over seven years ago and she's been rocking life ever since. She's an award-winning, alcohol-free drinks mixologist and you may see her regularly pop up on your Instagram feed at Emma Sobersonic. Also wish to take this opportunity to thank you for all your support over the last year and to wish you a very happy Christmas. I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a feedback. So Emma, welcome to my show One for the Road. It's so lovely having you on as a guest. We've been trying to plan this in for a while now, but we've uh, both been busy in the sober sphere. How are you getting on today? Are you all right? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Dave. It's lovely to be here and I'm excited about the prospect of this being my eighth sober Christmas. Oh, that is incredible, isn't it? That's uh, It soon goes by as well, doesn't it? It's like... I'm coming up to four years when this goes out and um, it, you know, the first few months it, it's like, oh my God. But after a while you think, I can't believe I am where I am now. Does that feel like that for you? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we've met quite a few times and had some really sort of frank and honest conversations, but this morning I've been a bit like, oh, butterflies and nerves about talking to you doing this. And it's been really good reminder of those early days of how you feel about not drinking or telling people or, you know, people knowing the full, you know, the full scale of it or how it's been impacting you. So I viewed this morning's nerves as, um, as being like, you know, a good thing to sort of take me back to those, those sort of early moments. Um, cause yeah, we met, didn't we, at, um, the February, 2020 mindful drinking festival for the first yeah. time yeah yeah, yeah you were quite early on then yeah i, I yeah. just celebrated my year if it was 2020 and that was just before lockdown as well wasn't it yeah and yeah i'm the same as you i think it's really important to say grounded with sobriety and not just think well i'm four years in eight years in and i've smashed it because i know people that are 20 years in and they've come a cropper you know so it's all about reminding yourself of your journey and um, staying humble as well, I think is really important, you know. And, you know, we've met quite a few times 
Uh, and I'm equally as excited about this interview because I don't know that much about your past as well. So this is going to be interesting for me to hear. So don't know. You look even more nervous now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so where yeah. where did it all, but how far back would you like to go? Well, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and um, it's really interesting because I can kind of think, oh, you know, my relationship with alcohol, how it changed sort of when I became um, became a mum because my uh, quantity had decreased, but the impact that it was having um, was very, very different to when I'd been drinking um, in my 20s. But then if you rewind a little bit more prior to that, um, you think, oh, you know, like, like most teenagers of a certain generation, um, you know, I started drinking when I was 14. But then I was reminded the other day when I was having a chat with my dad, we were sort of talking about port and Portugal. And I was like, oh, yeah, I really like white port. I used to really like white port. And um, I remember that I first had that when I was about 10 years old. So actually, my kind of drinking story goes back to sort of single digits, really. So it's probably, you know, a good place to start, really, that when I was a child, I'd be given diluted wine with the Sunday lunch. And I particularly remember drinking something called pomaine from. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. We used to take that to the parties. Yeah. I remember pomaine. drinking pomaine from um, silver goblets my parents had. And we had it with like a roast, roast pork dinner or something. Um, so, yeah, that's very strongly anchored in my, in my, the sort of memories. Um, I also remember when Greece was released, watching it on TV, drinking baby sham, bottles of baby sham. Again, I would be like nine years old. And it was always couched as a special treat or, you know, a little drop of Tia Maria on your on your ice cream and your meringue emma. Um, but actually alcohol was woven into my childhood um, more than just being at the table. My parents brewed their own um, their own wine. So weekends could be spent helping bottling it um it could also be me sat around the kitchen table having my breakfast surrounded by not just demijohns but those huge massive bottles that would all be fermenting on chairs Mm. around around the table um so alcohol was really really firmly in the family home and my parents attitude to uh giving me alcohol was kind of like i think they felt it was it was continental. It was um, kind of progressive, you know, like it wasn't a big deal. And it's interesting because one of my grandmothers, she rarely drank. And if she did, it was heavily watered down. She had a very dim view of alcohol um, because her father had died very young from consuming too much. He'd, uh, he'd run a brewery. Um, but she also kind of wouldn't have a word said against it because ultimately that's where her livelihood had come from. Um, so, you know, it always kind of been there in the background. And to begin with, when I'd go to parties, sort of 14 or so, um, and other people were drinking and they were raiding the, um, you know, the cocktail cabinets and getting in a bit of a bad state, I had a very much take it or leave it attitude towards it. And so initially it looked like their strategy was, was paying off, just wasn't, wasn't that interested but um, I remember when I went to university, um, and I went to Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, it was in the early nineties, and I remember one one Friday night, I'd stayed in to do my uh, feeling a bit shaky remembering this actually. Stayed in to do to do some um, course assignments, and the course uh, I was doing my homework. And the halls of residence that I lived in um, was based on a Swedish prison. That was the architectural blueprint for it which basically meant you were very isolated from from people I remember looking out the window and I couldn't see a single light on Mm. and that really mean nasty inner voice came up at a time when I was feeling quite vulnerable homesick um and it said you sad 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 bleep 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 everyone else is out having a great time look at you you've got no friends just here doing doing your essay what a sado, you know. And after that, I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to change things here. And so I kind of jumped in, jumped on board in um, university 
sort of life and drinking, which at that time would involve bottles of K-cider and shots for 30p, you know, and gotten a few, a few states from drinking at that point. But there was a couple of things that kind of kept it sort of manageable, really. It was like, you know, it was on a, on a student grant. So I didn't really have the financial ability to drink a huge amount. Not that that stopped me, but, you know, there were sort of things that kept it, kept it in place. And, you know, again, looking back, can see that quite a few of the, the jobs that I got during my university years were in nightclubs, they were in pubs, they were in jazz cafes. And again, you know, they, they meant that alcohol was ready available and accessible. Anyhow, I kind of thought that when I left university, my drinking days would be over. That would be it. Um, you know, that felt like there was going to be a cutoff point. And then I ended up working in media publishing. And literally, it was like the university days had just been the warm up. Um, and now the proper partying was, was about to start. And, you know, some of the industries that I worked, worked across were food and wine. They were fashion. There were computer games when that was in its infancy. And, uh, you know, they were really, really crazy times. And literally you would wear your hangover as a badge of honor. You know, and it wasn't a brilliantly paid job. So, you know, your commission was everything and it was very much a sort of work hard play hard environment and everybody was drinking everybody was drinking so if you didn't drink you weren't part of the gang so again there was that sense of you know feeling like an outsider if you didn't fully jump on board so you know all those kind of silly scrapes that you'd get yourself into which now you know you cringe about it thinking god going to a work christmas party dressed as a bottle of tequila uh, just behind somewhere on Oxford Street, and then and then having a wee in a uh, telephone box on Oxford Street on the way home. How classy! Like you know, but everyone was just like, oh, you know, it's really funny, and everyone else would be getting into a worse state than that. So it was normal. It was mm. absolutely normal. And at that sort of point, because you're in an environment where literally it was going to the pub. For a meeting, which involved to begin with, it would be a white wine spritzers. Um, then it was pints of Carling Premier. Then it would just kind of progress to vodka Red Bull later on in the evening. And you kind of suddenly realised that quite quickly you'd gone from maybe drinking a couple of times a week to drinking most of the week. And depending on what day of the week it was at that point, there would be, you know, a different drink. So for, um, for example, like Sunday would be all about lager shandies and then building up to red wine in the evening. Um, Monday would be going for white wine spritzers. And, you know, even like Tuesday night was hump night eve. It was every night was game on. And I kind of lost count of the amount of days holiday I had where I wouldn't go into the office because I had a hangover. All of these are massive red flags, but actually at the time it was normal. Everyone else was doing that. I didn't stand out from it. No one sort of pulled me aside and said, hang on a minute. You know, it was, um, it was part and parcel of, of the job that, you know, we were doing and how it rolled at the time. And, you know, I can look back at those times as well and partially cringe. But also think, well, yeah, you know, there were some, there were some fun times in yeah. amongst that. It, it just got a little bit like a lot out of control. And, you know, I knew that I needed to do something about it. I just didn't know what. Um, I mean, one of the jobs when I was working in the food and wine industry, I think I was about 24 and I had gout. I had gout from literally drinking so much you know port um whiskey liqueurs brandy liqueurs and you know all this rich food really young girl having Quite to wear young trainers to gout, isn't it yeah 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 really? and again i'd gone to the gp and said oh my foot really hurts they diagnosed gout i was horrified i was like that's something that people well, did they ask you about your drinking then no 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 and i think even if they had i probably would have fudged fudged the yeah, answer because yeah. yeah so much shame in that yeah. and I think I probably blamed oh you know the rich food rather than rather than the alcohol so yeah I mean there were a lot of things that kind of came up 
when you think looking back on it like oh gosh you know really really should have reined it in then I mean yeah, I don't but you think, don't as well yeah. when you're young as well and you, you've got the peer pressure of work you know if you said on a Friday lunchtime actually I'm going to um, work on through they'd look at you like an alien wouldn't they so yeah. yeah and also we become this role when we drink don't we I don't know if you was like that role where you was like, yeah, you know, encouraging each other and you almost believe yourself, don't you? Yeah, I think so. And also, I mean, when I was a child, I was only child, very, very shy. Um, wouldn't really say boo to a goose. And when you work on a really busy sales floor, like trying to, you know, fit into that, alcohol was a great way to access that and to create an identity that was completely at odds with my own you know by the time I was 27 I knew I needed to do something about it I even moved away from London very very briefly to um, work in the West Country um, because I needed to be going to sort of new places that didn't have all this baggage of drunken nights attached to them Um, unfortunately for me Look, with hindsight, again, moving somewhere new, not knowing anyone. I mean, on the one hand, it was very brave, but it was it was too much. Mm. Um, and uh, I didn't really have a different identity. Um, so I just had to go with the one that I already had. And very quickly, I was like, I can't handle this. It's it's too small town. Um, so I moved, moved back to London again. Um, you know, I think sometimes you, you go gravitate back to what's safe, don't you? And, and what feels sort of cozy and nurturing. And um, I didn't have the confidence to, to look at my drinking and to make some decisions about it. I mean, I think the interesting thing is that when I did have gout, um, I had like a six week period of just eating really, really clean and not and not drinking or only drinking um uh, white wine spritzers, which in my book back then really didn't count. Even if I was getting through a bottle of white wine, it was it was with water, sparkling water. So you know, it's fine. It doesn't count. It's not part of it. Um, and that period, I remember feeling really healthy um, and looking fabulous. But it wasn't enough to keep keep me on that track because actually I hadn't rebuilt a life. I'd just been at home watching telly, feeling like I was missing out on you know, everything else that everybody else was was doing. Yeah, which is why I think that, you know, when you stop drinking, finding community is is so important. And and bizarrely, it's something that I didn't do for the first couple of years. So so we'd had this sort of period of um, increasingly drinking more, feeling really, really rubbish, um, always having a hangover, um, and that sort of low level of anxiety always making poor decisions, poor choices, being in relationships that were really not great um, and very destructive, but still never really realizing that alcohol and removing alcohol could improve things significantly. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a really slow, slow ebb. Um, so when I was 33, I met the man of my dreams and yay, he's got to get a mention, right? And, um, you know, I met him on a charity bike ride and for the first time in, you know, a good 10 years, I was doing something which didn't involve just going to the pub and we were cycling from um, Land's End to John O'Groats and I met him actually at Land's End at the signpost and by the time we'd got to um, North Scotland, he asked me out on a date. Wow, and I said, that's I said, brilliant. I was like, oh, yes. Because by that time, um, I'd worked out that I really liked this guy's values. Yeah. And, yeah, and it was like the first time where I'd gravitated towards somebody for their values rather than on how cool they were or, you know, kind of all that. Or their drinking stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like him because um, he likes a drink. And I had this conversation the other day actually about how your values change when you're drinking because if someone said to me back in the day, oh, I don't really drink, that would have been an instant pour for me. It's like, how can we have a relationship? So it's really lovely to hear the flip side of it. Yeah, 100%. Well, actually, I mean, you know, when he'd asked me out on this date, I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah that'd be nice okay sure 
I suddenly was like, oh my goodness, I've not actually seen him in normal clothes. What if he turns up in something? <laughs> Don't you seen him in Lycra? I was like, what if I'm going to, you know, what if he's going to turn up with some like really Larry shirt or something? Um, and that's, you know, that's how shallow I was at that time, yeah. that literally I could have put a roadblock in my future based based on stuff, you know, something like that. Um, even though like my head was saying, this is a really nice guy. He's got great values. He's not your normal type, which is probably a good thing, right? Um, so, uh, we had a whirlwind romance and literally were married, I think within 18 months. Um, and he, he was in the forces. So rather unusually, uh, I was married and I was pregnant and we were still living apart because he was based somewhere else. So when we did uh, finally move in together, um, it was the whole whole shebang all at once, which from always kind of living um, by myself with a cat was a massive, massive shift. And it's around that time that I started to become sober curious. So literally on our wedding day, one of my friends rocked up and um, I'd been there looking going why aren't you drinking why aren't you drinking like you live in France why aren't you drinking it's free bar and uh he said oh I've changed I'm I'm just having a break you know I think everyone needs to reassess their relationship with alcohol every once in a while I was a bit like what what the dickens is that all about I mean you live in France surely it's like coming out the taps but anyhow that little seed got kind of planted yeah buried and years later it literally years later it started to to germinate so after I got married we lived in married quarters quickly had two children and uh because of like commuting complications and you know being forces and stuff and moving about um I stopped stopped working and that's probably one of the best and worst things that I could have done because I was no longer in that kind of boozy environment anymore. But also it meant that motherhood felt really not very high octane, pretty tedious, pretty humdrum. Um, It wasn't at all what I'd expected it to be. And, um, you know, I'd kind of reached wine at the end of the day. It's kind of like this is, you know, this is my time now. I've got, got through, you know, the fish finger feeding frenzy reward Um, reward reward i deserve this all those kind of names but uh i think hormonal changes were having an impact my ability to process alcohol had shifted with um following pregnancies um and it was a bit like russian roulette i never knew if those two or three glasses of wine were going to be okay or if i was going to feel absolutely horrendous so that added to the kind of edge of anxiety and you know you never quite knew how it was going to turn out which you know you kind of accept but with hindsight it's such a horrible way to live never knowing how your night's going to turn out whether it's going to be okay whether it's going to end up in some blazing row over nothing and uh yeah it was it was just really unsettling so i think it was around that time that like my drinking took on a dark side because whilst i was drinking less volume wise it was having a massive impact on me and i was just feeling most of the time like i was a rubbish human being a rubbish mum um and and failing at everything so around that time my um husband retired from the forces and we relocated to Gloucestershire. We relocated to a small town where I knew nobody, which again, you look at it and think, oh, that was that was a pretty brave thing to do. But then how do you how do you make friendships? Um, where you go out with the other mums and it's all about alcohol. And initially it was fine, but having been a Londoner, I suddenly realized when I moved out to the country that actually I'd been living without realizing it, under a big specter of stress and anxiety from the busyness of the city. And suddenly that wasn't gone. I felt quite sort of free. Um, so that was that was a really big eye-opener. But with it, I realized that the anonymity that you get in the city was completely gone. And actually, you know, maybe that taxi that I got home the other night when I was, you know, absolutely raving drunk 
maybe that's being driven by one of the kids parents from reception class Mm. you know and that that was just you know for someone who is inherently shy that's incredibly frightening and Mm. scary and it was around that time as well where because I just didn't know how much the alcohol was going to affect me I sometimes been a little bit of a blackout so in a little bit of a blackout you know you'd be then the next day trying to piece things together Again, just a really, really awful way to be uh, living and to be kind of looking after small children with a hangover and also that kind of blind panic. What did I do? What did I say? Have I upset somebody? And nine times out of ten, I hadn't, but it it was just, it was there. And I put myself under so much pressure back then as well. Um, you know, the show must go on. My drinking was not going to interfere with with any you know any of the normal stuff. So I remember having like a little glimmer when I found out that Beavers was going to become Cubs and it was going to get half an hour, forty minutes later on a Friday night. My immediate thing was, oh, I'm not going to be able to have a drink yeah. that bit later. And you know these things they take you back to your childhood. I thought I don't want to be. Like, you know, my mum would always be, if you want to go out, you go out, but you need to know how you're going to get home because I'll have had a drink. I can't come and pick you up. And I'm not knocking her for that at all. I just didn't want to be um, replicating that. or I didn't want it to impact. So I'd be like, well, I'll just have to have a drink. You know, I'll just have to have a drink later. I'll just have to readjust. And I, you know, I remember taking the children to a kids club Saturday cinema uh, to watch, oh God, that Let It Go film. Um, you know the one I mean. Let it go. Um, that's let the it one. Go. That's the one. What's it called? I can't remember. Frozen. There we go. Frozen. Yeah. And um, they were so excited. I think my daughter got dressed up in the dress. And we'd gone, and you know, again, I'd only in inverted commas had three glasses of wine the night before. Midway through the showing, I had to rush out of the cinema and go and be sick in really? in the loos. And I remember trying to be sick as quickly as possible. And oh God, I need to be sick again and again. I think I've left my two small children in a dark cinema on their own to come and be sick. So all of that kind of shame kept me so, so stuck in where I was at. And I really, I really wanted to stop. I didn't feel like I could. And I'd bought, you know, I'd like bought a book on um, quitting drinking and I'd ordered it. It hadn't come by Prime because Prime wasn't invented at that point. And I didn't didn't read it, just sat and looked at it and just look at it as I was drinking wine on the sofa. I, was, I just felt broken, so broken. Yeah. 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 It was such such a dark place. Like I felt, if I rewind eight years, I felt I had so much wrong with me with my life and actually life wasn't that bad at all um but I was in real victim mentality and uh you know oh woe is me and you know things things sort of happened in um 2015 my grandmother died on New Year's Day and then six weeks later my other grandmother died and that really hit me hard because one had been 98 and the other had been 103. So it was inevitable that they were going to die, but they sort of lived forever. So I didn't think they they were. Um, and I, you know, went to both those funerals sober and awake sober, which was really important because um, I'd been to a funeral the previous year and got really drunk and felt uh, so ashamed of my behaviour there. Um, and, you know... It's like that kind of making amends. How do you make amends? The only way you can make amends is by proving to yourself that you're not that person again. So those, you know, attending those two funerals and not, you know, disgracing myself was a massive step in maybe I might be able to do this, but I still wasn't quite ready. Um, Then my mum became very, very ill um, in that April and ended up in hospital for um, a long period of time. Um, she was paralyzed down one side and I was driving every day to go and see her. My friends were amazing at looking after children and stuff. And actually, by the time I got back, 
was almost too tired and too emotional to have a drink, but wanted to have one in any case because I just couldn't face the thought of losing yet another really important female in my life. And at that point, I really identified that alcohol was poisoning me. It was poison. I was poisoning myself. My, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night feeling horrific, even with a small amount. Uh, my legs felt really heavy, restless. And I had this moment of, you know, instead of doing a detox, which you never fully finish in any case, why don't you just stop drinking the poison? And I think when you've identified something as being a poison, you realize what you're doing is a form of self-harm. And I still didn't think I could do it. I just, I just don't think I can do it. How will I, you know, how will I live my life without alcohol? I've really become a slave to it. And what will I drink? Like, what else will I drink? I don't want to drink water for the rest of my life. So I just carried on drinking Sauvignon Blanc and, um, it literally, it wasn't even uh, with a cork. I'd ferret out the ones which had a screw cap because that was easiest. It was literally lowest common denominator. And then kind of, you know, time went on. It just stayed the same. And I felt so stuck, so sad and so powerless. And then I went out and I had the most horrendous, horrendous, horrendous hangover. And I'm so eternally grateful for that. Went out um, for a nice meal with some friends, and as per, ended up, you know, absolutely caning the shots, drinking prosecco, getting everyone back to mine. Ran out of prosecco, so just drinking neat aperol. I mean, you know, absolutely crazy. And when I woke up the next morning, I literally felt like death. But you know, show must go on. Come on, children, off we go to swimming. Swimming pool, literally, I was like sweating, so hot really claustrophobic, the smell of chlorine, all the rest of it. Just awful, Dave. And I uh, came back, my dad rang, and I had to give the phone to my son to go and be sick again because the effort of talking to my dad was just too much. And it was like, okay, you, you know, you can't carry on like this. You really, really can't. And that night was Halloween, so literally I just put a wig on over my thick hair, put on some uh, white paint makeup over the makeup I hadn't taken off dressed up as Morticia and literally felt like I was putting on a death mask and went out and I came back um actually when we were out a friend said oh come to our fire ceremony and she said oh just write some intentions on a bit of paper and put them in the fire and I'd never done anything like that and I remember just writing on this piece of paper I felt absolutely broken I can't keep doing this to my body I need to stop mm. Popped it in the fire, and the next day I picked up the book, started reading it, and I had my last drink on the 9th of November, uh, two, uh, 2015. And it didn't feel at that time like an empowered choice. It felt like admitting defeat. Yeah. Um, but oh my goodness, I am so eternally thankful that. You know, my life took me to that point where I now don't drink at all because I just, you know, I'm like, I don't have that poison in me at all. You know, I've had the last seven years of not having a single yeah. drink. Yeah. 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 And it goes to show actually that sometimes the seed can be planted at the beginning. And by your story, it took quite a while, but it goes to so don't give up on that hope because you kept saying I didn't think I could do it I didn't think I could do it and you got to a point where actually almost like you said to yourself I've got to do it yeah. uh, there's no alternative and that's how it was for me at the time I just knew the year before I thought I'm actually in trouble here like the amount I was drinking and the amount of mornings I woke up and thought I can't even get in the van you know, yeah, and you know, I just, you know, there's that saying, "I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired." That's where I got in the end, you know. So there, there is an opportunity for people to take something from this story. Of even if I don't feel I can do it now, there will be a day that I will reach. And in the meantime, I've got to be open to that decision rather than shut it down and think I just can't do it. Because yeah. that's victim mode. That's negative thinking. 
Um, yeah. And there, there would be a lot of people actually that would want to know what the book was as well that you bought. Yeah, and you know, I've got such um, I've got such mixed feelings about it. So on the one hand, I'm eternally grateful to Jason Vale for writing How to Quit Drink Easily, um, but it was written about twenty years ago. So for me, whilst it inverted commas did the trick, it did leave me several years into the journey feeling I was not drinking from fear rather mm. than I was not drinking from um, an empowered and liberated um, perspective. Mm. And, you know, I think that's a really important point to make because, you know, back in 2014 when I, when I bought the book, there wasn't a huge amount of literature that was, that was available and that was out there. And I never imagined from my day one, you know, when there weren't sober apps and we just used our fingers and it did feel like I was a prisoner chalking off my days on the yeah. edge of the cell, that I would get to, um, you know, just before Christmas, I'm going to be 2,600 days. And, you know, like following other people, I know that some people relapse. I know that they can go back to it. And I think that that's a really, you know, if that happens to you, it's a really valuable part of the journey and you learn a lot. Yeah. Or you can learn experience. a lot if you choose yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, I think one of the reasons that I kept going, because it was hard. I mean, I didn't meet my first sober person like sober friend for about three years yeah. uh, which is just you know when you think about the amazing events that you put on where people connect really early on in their sobriety you know to, to, to not have any sort of sober buddies or contact for three years now just it's like well, you're living on the moon well know? it's different now yeah. though isn't it I mean even since I've become sober it's changed and uh, you know all the books out there uh, there's one actually, one for the road, which is meant to be pretty good. Uh, it's, it uh, is very good, yeah. Uh, we had dolls on your uh, book club thing the other night, and, and the right, way you yeah. articulated um, your take out about me was really fascinating, actually. I hadn't thought about it before, but there's all, all new literature. There's lots of communities on socials, Facebook groups, whatnot, Loads and loads of podcasts ranging from like mind life stories to science based podcasts. You know, there's so much out there now uh, that makes it easier for connection. And I agree with you that the connection is so important because I think when we're drinking, we feel isolated um, because it's not something we openly discuss with our friends. Uh, and the last thing you need to be is feel isolated in your sobriety as well. Because interestingly, what you said earlier about going back to London, about the safety of it, I think a lot of people go back to drinking because although we know it's terrible for you, there's a certain safety in there because we've used it to blunt so many feelings out. And it's we use it as a coping mechanism, don't we? And, uh, oh, you know, yeah. in our life and... Uh, the way things are lately with things going on, we all try and seek safety. And that's why I try and encourage people I work with is that the actual safety is in removing it from your life, although it might feel scary. Yeah, I think, you know, when I when I quit drinking or removed alcohol or however you want to dress it up, I felt like it was over. I felt like my life was over and how, you know, how was I going to function? How was I going to fit in with the rest of society? It was, it felt like such defeat. And, you know, like, it's interesting what you said right at the very beginning about people 20 years, suddenly having little blips. Um, it was like literally last year when I'd had just a series of unrelenting things going on to weather um you know like the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back kind of happened and it was like god I just want to drink and I didn't want to drink for pleasure I didn't want to drink for fun I didn't want to drink to be sociable I wanted to drink to get absolutely obliterated and to shut all of the hard stuff out and give my brain a break from it mm. and I think you know like for me 
and probably for many other people, there are two sides to your drinking story. There's the social going out, having fun with people, and then there's the coming home and there's the drinking on your own. Mm. And very much for me um, as a you know busy mum, I felt when everyone had gone to bed, that was my time to just sit and drink wine. Now, that's not being sociable. That's not relaxing. That's being overwhelmed and that's needing to find other ways. Yeah, 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 mm. completely. And it's very um, different relationship then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's <clears throat> it's destructive. It's really mm. destructive. But because you've got so many aspects of society telling you, um, you know, alcohol is fun, alcohol is glamorous, you become really wedded to that. And I think for me, the the couple of episodes that, that really started to get me thinking, God, you can't carry on like this, you know, leaving, like you can have your drinking stories where it's really funny, like, oh, yeah, you know, you had a wee in the, in the um, phone box on Oxford Street, oh, you dressed with a bottle of tequila. You know, you can, you can have that as a kind of, all right, shameful drinking story. But leaving your two children in the cinema to go and be sick in the loos because, you know, you had one glass too many the night before. That's, you know, that's not glamorous. No. That's taking it to risky proportions. But, you know, the other thing what you said there that came up with me is when you do go home and you drink alone, you leave yourself. Yeah. And and I did that every single night. I left myself. I didn't value myself enough to stick with it. You know, I had to leave. And that makes me feel really sad now when I think about it because I'm worth more than that. But at the time, I didn't feel worthy of anything. Yeah, I can really identify with that because um, I think you just get into a habit of abandoning yourself, don't you? And your identity is so wrapped up with, you know, drinking. You don't know who you are without mm. it. Mm. Um, when I when I first stopped drinking, I felt numb. I felt numb for months and months on end. And I, I'm always really interested when um, I see people sharing their stories and like oh yeah first few months are amazing I was on this pink cloud I'm like oh, what pink cloud I don't mm. I don't see any pink cloud for me the start of my sobriety was like being on a sun lounger on X on the beach just lying on the beach wondering what was going to come out of the sea it was mm. utterly terrifying and then after about three or four months, all these things from the past started to re- resurface, all these deep, buried memories. It was really hideous. It, it wasn't pleasant at all. And, you know, there was nowhere to hide when you haven't got alcohol to kind of, you know, put a blanket over it all. It's very, very confronting. You just kind of have to accept it and trudge through. And many, many years ago, I used to be quite a heavy smoker. And it took me quite a lot of unsuccessful attempts to to quit nicotine. And so I really kind of clung on to that when all those like horrible emotions and feelings resurfaced of like, don't go back to square one, like do not pick up one drink because it'd be like, oh, I'll just have one cigarette or just let me a cigarette. And then you'd be literally buying 20 and, and back on it again. And it's, you know, in early sobriety, it can be, it can be hard because it's new. It's a new way of, um, of managing your emotions, of sitting yeah. with things. And it's, I think rather than think of it as being hard, it's really important to think of it as being new because if you've been drinking for your entire life, you've kind of blunted um, your ability to to weather stuff and to process things. To manage it, you know, and that's why I I quite often discuss grieving because you are coming out of a a long-term relationship that you've relied on as well. And it's not, as you said earlier, there have been fun times So there's been fun times, there's been awful times, there's been times that it's really helped you out of a sticky situation because you've numbed your emotions. So when not only are you dealing with not drinking, you're dealing with the emotional side of it as well, which is the trauma of the separation process of, oh my God, now that's no longer in my life. I don't know who I am. I don't know how to be. 
And that's quite often we revert back to our childhood because we, you and me started when we were 14. We've blunted our emotions out from then. They're going to come back some, some, on some level, right? And quite often we go back to that feeling like the child, you know. I know I did. And you have to process all that as well. And it's overwhelming. And when you feel overwhelmed, you go back to the default, I need a drink because I feel overwhelmed. Oh, I can't have a drink. What do I do now? <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's yeah. like a really, really odd place to be. But that's why I say some days you literally have to go half a day at a time to get over it. And some days you have to sit in it as well. You know, you've got to yeah. sit in that pain and think, right, I I have to process it. I don't like it. I don't know how to do it. But all I do know is that I cannot drink. And that is yeah. enough to get you through the day and put your head on the pillow that night and think, right, oh, my God, what a bloody awful day that was. But I did it. And the more you do that, the more you sort of build up your resolve and your self-esteem and stuff and before you know it, you're looking back and you're thinking, God, I've just smashed six months. <laughs> I didn't think I could do six days, you know, and it and it goes yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting you say that because I stopped um, at the start of November and I didn't think I was going to stop forever. Certainly didn't think I was going to not have a blip. And I often joke, oh, I wish I'd got people to sponsor me, you know, like that would have been a bit of a result. But, you know, like literally the start of December came, all the offers came on the booze, 25% off for six bottles. And I was there, I was putting them in my trolley. Didn't want to miss out. But equally, I was like, well, maybe I can get another day, squeeze another day out of this. Um, but still don't want to miss out on 25% off, man. Gosh, you know, I've yeah. always drank loads on Christmas Day. And then the closer and closer and closer I got to Christmas Day, I was just like, well, I'll see if I can do this. I'll see if I can do, do this. Because, you know, like I thought I can do the hardest day of the year then you know that would be great and I I did I did manage and I just kept going and and the payback didn't come immediately but on New Year's Day instead of having a hangover and being all bleary-eyed I looked in the mirror and I saw for the first time sparkly eyes looking back at me I was like wow and I think that's the thing about sobriety you don't always get the payback immediately when you need it. It's not like you get to the end of a computer level and woohoo, you know, yeah. you're cast and all the fireworks yeah, yeah. go off and then it's the next one. Often you've already started like the next level before you get the reward mm. from the previous one. And, um, you know, like there was a huge learning in that, that if you can get through those difficult parts, those new parts, that there will be a gift there somewhere. But you just have to wait to notice it. And I think when you're drinking, it's all about the immediate gratification. You know, get rid of that uncomfortable feeling or, yay, get on board the party bus like straight away. You know, we're yeah. all having a great time. Whereas when you're sober, you have to move into that at a far gentler pace. Um, and it's, you know, it's more, more authentic because it's real rather than manufactured and synthetic. Yeah. And it's true what you say about the instant gratification because that's what we get with the drinking, right? Because, yeah. like, for me, I used to pour a massive vodka and tonic and down it, and there's probably four doubles in the glass, right? So when you say instant gratification, within five minutes, I'm, I'm on my way. Yeah. I'm on the way to leaving myself and not yeah. dealing with it. So when you stop, all of a sudden, it's that whole thing of, like, what the hell? But yeah. it's never linear as well. That's why I use the analogy of riding your bike where you get out and you go around. It's ironic you said about that's how you met your husband, right? Because <laughs> yeah. on that journey from John O'Groats to up to Scotland, right, you would go around the corner after a nice stretch and the sun's out and there's a massive hill and it starts to get cold and it rains. And what do you do with yourself? Do you chuck your bike in the hedge and get a cab back or do you keep pedalling? Right. And it's the same with sobriety because you have, even after years and years and years, bad stretches like you, you've said last year, you know, and for me this year has been really challenging. But all I know is that I have to get through it because what's the alternative? Going yeah. back to that drug is not an alternative to me anymore. 
because I know where I would be in a month's time from now if I did. My life would be that dark, horrible, narrow life that I've worked so hard to leave. Yeah. And, you know, however tricky or challenging life becomes, living on life's terms without a hangover is still easier, way, way easier than navigating that tricky, challenging thing with a hangover. Feeling so much self-loathing, disgust, despair, um, lacking in confidence, you know, all, you know, your self-esteem being in tatters, you know, it, it really does give you such, such a foot up on, on where you would have been previously. And so all the, all the difficult things that have happened, I still think, yeah, but this would be so much, so much harder if I was drinking. Um, and, you know, hand on heart, seven plus years on, there's still not a single day where there hasn't been at least one occasion. I thought, God, I wouldn't have done that if I was drinking or yeah. that wouldn't have happened. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's at that point that you think, yeah, I, I had a problematic relationship with alcohol. You know, whatever you want to call it, problem drinker, alcohol, disuse uh, misuse disorder, um, alcoholic, however people want yeah. to term, you know, ter- put that sort of label or terminology. If when you quit drinking, you still think flipping act, thank God for that. You, you know that inherently, if you'd stayed drinking, you were on a, a, a real pathway to, to ruin, destruction, and, you know, just it was never going to work yeah. out no and also like i did a post today about how the knock-on effects of all all the people around you as well you know how it impacts them because i find when we we're caught in this loop of the hamster wheel of doom we do tend to think about ourselves right of yeah. how can i get out of this what can i do this is utterly miserable for me and it's equally important to think outside the box and think actually how miserable is it for people that love me, for who are worried about me, worried if I'm going to pull through this, you know. And, you know, I encourage people to think about that, even though it may feel uncomfortable, it's important, you know. And now I look back and with huge regret, I've made amends with some, with others I haven't been able to. But we're here in the present now. And from day one, from now, listening to this podcast, people can change everything by even the seed of this conversation to to make one person think, do you know what? (sighs) I I need to look at it, you know, and you're proof of that. I am that. That seed can grow if you nurture it. And Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we've probably sort of, probably all sounding you know someone's listening to this for the first time thinking oh god that all sounds quite heavy um doesn't sound fun at all i you know i just really want to ensure sort of reassure anyone like i have the biggest belly laughs now i have the best chuckles um i love i love my life even even when it's hard um Mm. I have so much fun and enjoyment and and from the little things as well, from the little things. And I have so much kind of peace of mind mm. um, that really wasn't there previously. Everything gets better. You know, your relationships mm. get better. How you feel about yourself as a person gets better. How you um, just conduct yourself. Like I met someone over the summer. And uh, they said to me, God, I just can't imagine you drinking. can't imagine you being drunk. And that, <laughs> that is great, isn't it, when you oh, hear that? that was just the best, yeah. best compliment someone could, yeah. could have given me. I was like, yeah. yes. But like you say, yeah, not, not to get complacent about that. And I don't want to be like, oh, you're only one drink away from, you know. No, I understand that. But yeah. the other thing that it gives you is um, so much freedom in your head. Because when I was drinking, all I thought about was my drinking. From the minute I woke up to, I'm not drinking tonight, I've got to change it, to, oh, I could have one tonight, to then drinking and then regretting it after the buzz had gone, chasing the dragon later on in the evening, to waking up at three o'clock in the morning, regretting it, and then repeat, you know. So when you take it out, there's all that freedom in your head which allows you to think about, 
new things in your life, you know, and new relationships and, you know, that whole thing, the joy of being sober. So thank you so much for sharing uh, that with me, Emma. And it's your eighth Christmas coming up and there'll be people (laughs) listening to this. Whether they they, uh, are going to drink over Christmas or they're not, what advice can you give to these people uh, about getting through this Christmas as mindfully as they can? Give yourself whatever you need, as long as it doesn't contain alcohol. Like, Christmas is a bit of a melting pot, isn't it? For so many reasons. You can be missing loved ones. um, Things can not quite go to plan. There's a huge amount of pressure, I think, on people to have a great time at Christmas. And, you know, the reality of it's anything to go, like, shown by EastEnders, that's not always the case. Like, Christmas could be a car crash. So um, don't put any pressure on yourself. Make sure you've got plenty of the things that you like. So if that's chocolate, if that's good quality coffee or tea or non-alcoholic drinks, get stocked up. You know, now is not the time to be scrimping because the buzz that you will get from um from acing christmas is just brilliant um take yourself off if it all gets a bit much with with family take yourself off for a nice little walk um or go and lock yourself in the loo you know it's like do do whatever it takes make sure you've got someone on speed dial who you can um check in with um and just kind of you know jolly jolly each other along and also focus focus on the good things in the day, the things that you maybe wouldn't have noticed previously um, and, and, you know, really enjoy them. And it sounds a little bit trite to say practice gratitude, but I am such a firm believer in gratitude getting you through uh, difficult, difficult times, hard times, because, you know, we're we're sort of hardwired to focus on on the negatives oh you know where was me things are hard but actually if you focus on the good things it, it helps to keep things in perspective yeah and, and balance it balanced, out doesn't it? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was going to mention as well for the sober curious maybe that are considering doing dry January and you know don't look at this as your last chance to learn and go out in glory before dry January you know like, be mindful Christmas Eve that if you drink too much, you're going to feel awful in the morning, Christmas Day, and then you're more likely to have a bucks for to level it out. You know, a little trick that I tell people on Christmas Day is try not to have your first drink until you sit down at the table because nine times out of ten, you start drinking the bucks fizz, then you'll have a glass of wine, and then you're drinking all day. And then by the time the dinner's there, you feel really tired, irritable. And that can go wrong, like we see in EastEnders. I don't watch it, but, you know, I can imagine. But, um, you know, like, and just just be mindful of it. And, and New Year's Eve, do you want to start dry January, the first day, the first day of 2023 with a stinking hangover? You know, have a soft drink in between an alcoholic drink, all these little tips, uh, and that'll fill you up anyway. And, and wake up and think, this could be my year now. Feel positive about it and start the new year afresh and think, right, this is the year of change for me. And that's where the gratitude list comes in. Write a few things down, you know. Yeah, and get and get really specific with them as well because I think – you know, make your brain think about it, not just, oh, you know, I'm really grateful for my friends, my family. Um, you know, I'm really, really glad that the central heating boiler isn't broken. I'm mm. all right, you know, might not be able to have it on full pelt because we haven't got money for that, but it's not broken. And we had it on for an hour and there was enough enough hot water for everyone to have a shower. Get, yeah. get really specific about the things that you are grateful for. Dig, dig down, because I think that when we're, when we're drinking, we kind of just tend to gloss over all of that stuff because we're yeah. just so fixed on on the alcohol rather than yeah. actually the the things that you know bring joy into our lives. Yeah. yeah, Emma, that is absolutely wonderful. I'm really, really grateful you've uh, joined me today, and I think this podcast will help a lot of people 
So thank you so much. Mm. I aim to see you in the new year somewhere uh, so we can get together. Meantime, have a lovely Christmas. Love to you and the family. And I'll see you soon. Thank you. Same to you, Dave, and to everyone else who's listening. Have a very happy Christmas and all the best for 2023. It's going to be your year, guys. Yay. (laughs) Thanks, Em. See you later. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. Don't forget you can also order a copy of my number one best-selling book, One for the Road. It's full of helpful and useful tips to help you stop drinking. You can order it today off Amazon. You can also find me for extra support on my Instagram account at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.